Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 4th, 2015. This is episode 1639 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, your time uh, to ask questions of the expert council. That's what makes this the monster show of the week. Uh, I am really excited at the way this show has been going, and we usually have you know somewhere between nine to all 13 of the expert council members on the uh, air. I think this week we have nine or ten. And uh, keep the questions coming. Put TSP expert in the subject line. Email me your question to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Remember, you can see all of our expert council members and learn about them if you go to our about page and then cl click on meet the expert council at the survivalpodcast.com. And every episode of an expert council show has a link straight to that page. You can see them all, learn about them, find out what they do, what they know, and how they can help you, and send your questions in for them. Remember, the best way when you send that question is please ask your question in one to two sentences. I promise that you can. And then give me your details in paragraphs after that. That will make everything go better, and it'll be more likely to get through. Also, a lot of you say, well, uh, send it to whichever expert council member you think is best. That's not a good idea. It's not a good idea because I might be too tired to think about it that day, just to be completely honest with you. And then on other notes, you know, I, I look at these things very, very quickly and I put them into a folder. And then on Mondays when I'm making the questions up for the expert council members and I want to find a question for John Pugliano, I search that folder for Pugliano. If you didn't put his name in there, I may never find your question ever again. Not because I don't want to, not even because I'm lazy, because it doesn't fit my efficiency model. So uh, just a little advice there on that. Before we get to your questions for the council, and I have a couple segments I'm going to cover today myself, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill... Brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel, and uh, right now he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find possible. The sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper, sun dried tomato, and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out harvesteating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer 
for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber. They have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. With that knocked out, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year being 1639, because the episode is 1639. I have Europe versus 13 Experiments in Liberty. I have Connecticut's First Constitution and the Principle of Dual Sovereignty. And then I have the Massacre at Magic Mountain. The one I'm going to read to you is Europe versus 13 Experiments in Liberty. Alex Shrugged has this for us today at tspwiki.com. England now makes a distinction between the British Isles and that land over there, historically called Europe. The root of the name Europe is a matter of speculation, but most likely the name comes from the Greek goddess Europa. As the myth goes, she often took the form of a cow, so Zeus took the form of a bull. Wow, was Europa ever surprised. The label Europe has been in use for centuries to refer to the culture and character of the people, but it did not refer to the general landmass until the late Middle Ages. Now in English, it refers to all of that. Europe is that region of Eurasia bounded by the Ural and Caucasus Mountains and going north and west to the Atlantic. That would include the western part of Russia, but not the British Isles, at least not anymore. My take by Alex Shrugged. In the modern day, there's been an attempt to bring Europe together as a unified political economic entity called the European Union, or EU. In some ways, it resembles the early government of the United States of America, a confederation of states. A Virginian citizen thought of himself as a different from a Massachusetts citizen as he lived in a different country. About the only place I've seen anything similar in the modern day is Texas. In Texas, we teach our kids to be Texans. When you cross the border into Texas, you are practically issued a hat and boots, an English to Texas dictionary. Even our trucks are Texan. It is fun being a Texan. I'm so glad I made it here. In some ways, I wish all the states had a separate identity because the USA was formed to be 13 experiments in liberty not a single point of failure called Washington, D.C. I agree, and I will tell you that right now there are people going, I, 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 I'm from Pennsylvania, we have our own unique identity, or I'm a Floridian, and we have our own. Yeah, you do, but no, you don't. No, you don't. And um, Alex is right. When you move to Texas, it's an indoctrination. There's places, especially in Appalachia, where when you go there, your great-grandkids might be accepted as, as, as natives. But if you're not from there... It takes a long time to be taken into the fold. When you come here, unless you don't want to be part of this place, you become part of this place immediately. You are welcome with open arms. And I've, I've found that to be true from, from urban communities to rural communities and everything in between. And there is something about this place. And I wasn't born here. 
We have a saying in Texas. I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could. I think you have to live here to understand it. There's there's a lot to not like about Texas, to be honest with you. It's hot. It's really hot here, especially in the summertime. Uh, a lot of the land is really tough land to work. Though we have some amazing land, too. I mean, the thing about Texas, you know, everybody says a stupid thing. If you don't like the weather here, just wait a minute, it'll change. And they all think that's unique to their place of existence. Everybody says that everywhere, so please stop saying it. It makes you sound dumb. I'm sorry. It does. Uh, you know, if you don't like the weather in Rhode Island, it, uh, shut up about that. They say that everywhere. California, they say it in, in Florida, they say it in Georgia, they say it every. Anyway, here the thing is, if you don't like the climate, you can move, not leave the state and change the climate. We have pure desert. We have hill country. We have mountains. We have East Texas pine forests. We have tropical coastline. I mean, full-on tropical coastline. And we have bayous like they do in South Louisiana because, well, I don't know if you've looked at a map, but that's right next door to us along the, the, the southeastern border. We've got it all here. But yet there's a cohesion, right? You don't see the Pennsylvania edition of, of a truck. Ford doesn't have a Pennsylvania truck. It doesn't have a Florida truck or a California truck, but there's a Texas edition. There's even Texas editions of tractor supply toolboxes for the back of your truck because we identify ourselves as Texans. It's unique. And I'm with Alex. It's not that I think we're better. I, I wish y'all would do it too. How Texan is that? Um, that's what this, this republic was supposed to be, a republic of nations. My message to those in Europe that get sucked deeper and deeper into this EU thing every day don't fall for it. It never works. If you create any central government, it will grow and it will take away the rights of the individual members of the republic. Republic is a great idea on paper, but it doesn't work out in reality. We do end up with a single point of failure, and then we end up with an attempt to do something that a republic is never supposed to do, but always ends up trying to do, make everybody equal. This nation is supposed to be about equal rights and equal opportunity, not equal results. And not equality through homogenization. Not equality through dragging down the people that are truly great at what they do to the level of others so everybody can feel good about themselves. But by looking up to people that do wonderful things and finding someone that you say, that's a person I want to be like. And I can't be as good as all of those people that are good, but I can strive to be like this one or two people in this one area that I'm passionate about and thereby raise the entire group up. Well, it's not going to happen with government. And it's not going to happen with a constitutional amendment. And it's not going to happen by putting another person in office. And that kind of leads me into my opening segment today. I want to talk to you guys today about what the Survival Podcast is really all about and really always has been about. People have said the show's changed over the years, and it, it has had additions to it. We have brought in things like the history segment. The shows go longer now that I'm not in a car uh, and in danger of being killed while I'm doing my job you know, teaching you guys or whatever. And we've done things like expert counsel and interviews and things that weren't possible. For those that are new to the show, when I started the show, I did it for two years in my car. Every day with a little $35 recorder and a $20 headset, I built this thing to what it is, starting with that. That's what this show's all about. Not me doing that, the fact that you can do that. 
from the very beginning, even though I evolved myself politically, as we all should be doing over time, there was a common theme. This show has always been about insurrection, rising up against the powers that control us and saying we can do better and it is our birthright to do better. My rights do not come from the Constitution. My rights do not come from any other man. My rights do not come from any piece of paper that anybody ever wrote, any words on, ever, period. My rights come from the fact that blood flows through my arteries and veins, and I think for myself, and I self-identify, and I declare my rights. You could very well piss off in telling me what my rights are and what my rights are not. Right up until the point that someone infringes with another person's ability to make that self-determination. Until such point, we should all have not a damn thing to say about what anybody else does. If somebody tries to hurt somebody else, if somebody tries to steal from somebody else, if somebody tries to prevent someone else from pursuing happiness, in the words of our founders, then yes, that is the time that we should intervene. And we should not look to a state to intervene. We should look to ourselves to intervene, to our neighbors to intervene, to our friends to intervene, to our communities to intervene. We have become a weak people dependent on the tit of the state. And all of us that think we're so much better than that person on welfare, we are sucking on our own individualized tits. We are benefiting in our own ways from this monstrosity. And on some levels, you don't get a choice. Some of the stuff that comes from the tit of the state is not spoon-fed to you. It's force-fed to you. I understand. That doesn't mean we can't resist. That doesn't mean that we can't every single day say, what the hell can I do to make my life more free, to make my life more independent? Stop worrying about everybody else. Start worrying about yourself. Because the best way that you can help others is to stand up and be the best that you can. Whoever programmed into the American people's mind that to do well was to harm others, that to succeed was in business was the mark of someone who was greedy. The collective nonsense that has programmed that into our mind has made us a weak people, and I have had enough of it. And I have had enough of it for a long time. I had already had enough of it in 2008. When I stepped into that car for the first time and turned on that recorder and said, they're, they're gonna, we're going to do this podcast, we're going to make something out of it together. Before I was saying things like, we're going to do this and we're going to make this happen when there was one person, me. If it was a psychologist would have been around, they would have thought I was losing my mind. They would have. They would have said, who is this we group? It's you by yourself. No one's listening to you, but I knew that people would. Because I knew that this was innately human, and I know now, far more clearly than I knew then, what this is really all about. This is about you taking your birthright away from anyone that tries to stand in the way of it. This is about being motivated enough that if there's a door closed, you kick it down, you take the hinges off it. If that doesn't work, you burn it to the ground with the frame, and you walk through the flames, and you come out the other side, and you say, screw this, I got shit to do, I have no time to explain myself anymore to people that want to tell me how things should be, or why they can't be that way. That's what TSP is about. Every one of these experts you know, that's answering a question like, what do I do with pecans? Well, in the question you'll hear about that today, it's a free food source. 
As a person that happens to live in a place where people are smart enough to plant them, and there's pecans this time of year everywhere. I gotta just go pick them up. What do I do with them all? So if you don't know what to do with them all, all you have is a bunch of rotting nuts. But if you know what to do with them, they can become a business. They can become a mainstay food source for you. They can feed your livestock. They can transform just one more little tiny piece of your life toward your own way, your own definition of how things should be for you. That's what TSP is about. That's what the Survival Podcast is about. I want you to have what you want, period. And there's not enough damn people out there that feel that way. I want every single person out there not only to have what you want, I want you to be able to look at your fellow man and be honest when you say it, not just parroting me, and say, I want all of these people to have whatever they want in their lives, for good or ill. If it's a mistake, in my opinion, maybe they'll prove me wrong. Maybe they'll prove me right. But they should have the right of free determination to find that out for themselves up until the point they harm somebody else. I want everyone to have what they want. You know what? That's what they. Remember I talked about they recently? That Willie Nelson made a comment. Let me tell you the interview. Somebody said to Willie one day, I don't remember who the interviewer was, but they said, Willie, if they told you you couldn't make music anymore, what would you do next? And he said, well, if I knew who they were, I would have killed them a long time ago. Who are they? They are the people that profit from all of us hating each other. They are the people that profit from us all believing what can't be done. They are the people that, that, that profit from your belief that someone else having what they want somehow affects you or takes away your ability to create abundance in your own life. That's who they are. They are the people in control. They print the money and they sell the money into circulation. And then they rob the money that you purchase with your effort and your labor and your promises of its value by making more of it and doing it again. And they control all the major industry. And they control every bit of your government. And you can't do anything inside their systems. You are inside a casino playing the game. Playing the game of the house and wondering why you can't win. Sure, every once in a while a bunch of bells go off. A bunch of pretty girls run up and kiss somebody who walks out with a bucket of money. And he's piss poor and back in the same seat about six weeks later. And all the money's right back to the house. That's what you get when they play their game. You gotta write your own rules to your own game and play your own game and figure out how to win. That's what the survival podcast is about. Giving you the tools and the knowledge and the ability to think clearly enough through the bullshit and haze to demand of yourself that you stand up and claim what you deserve and believe that you deserve it. That's what I want to give you today. And not all of our experts speak with that kind of passion. Not all of them speak with that kind of, of grit and grim desire for you to have what you want. But they're all helping you get there. By giving you the most important thing that you can have. Free knowledge. Free knowledge to be applied as you see fit in your life. With that, let's go ahead and take our first question for an expert today. So our first question today is for expert council member Ben Falk. This comes from Leo. Leo says, my question is about maintaining a natural swimming pond. I'm wondering if you can keep water clean without the use of chemicals or bacterial treatments or expensive aeration systems. I know some people achieve this with plants and some low-tech aeration. I figured you're the guy to ask. So, Ben, how do we do that? How do we create 
a pond that is a swimming pool that's healthy and safe for us to use as such. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Uh, great question. Yeah, we get this question actually a lot. Um, and the short answer is, of course, um, it depends. Um, another short answer is yes, of course, you can have high-quality pond water without chemicals and aeration or expensive equipment. There's many, many ponds in the world without all those things. And I guess a, another way to answer the question shortly would be you don't need chemicals to have a clean pond. Um, you know, I know you're probably in an area where people routinely apply chemicals to their pond, which is very unfortunate because ecology can make water much higher quality, of course, than than any chemical can. Um, but the, the thorough answer to your question is really, of course, it depends. Um, if you want, when you say clean water, I assume you mean high water quality, clear water, and healthy ecology um, to enjoy your pond, to swim in it, to raise fish, whatever else you want. Um, the limiting factor to that is the amount your biology in your pond can keep up with the nutrient loading into the system. That's a, a oversimplified um, explanation, but that's basically what's going on. You want, um, you know, water that has a very low a biological oxygen demand, um, and you want to reduce the nutrients going into the pond. Um, and the easiest way to balance this all out, of course, is to one easy way is to have a very high flow. You can't do much about your flow in the situation you described, but you can do a lot about your nutrient input. The biggest piece being your waterfowl that you have. Um, I don't let, and we have ponds in very similar situations where we don't have um, constant water supply. So in those situations, even with a pretty large pond like you have, um, I would recommend keeping your waterfowl out of the pond for at least a good chunk of the growing season, if not the whole growing season. Um, definitely in the hottest weather, you know, one of the first symptoms of poor water quality of a, of a imbalanced ecology in the pond and over nutrified pond is, of course, the presence of macroalgae and loss of clarity of the water. So as soon as you see that happening, you know that your flow and your biological engine in the pond, of the pond itself cannot handle the amount of nutrients coming in. My guess would be you already have that happening just because you don't have constant flow and you have a significant amount of waterfowl uh, accessing the pond. Um, it's great you don't have nutrient loading uphill. That's something that can be hard to deal with if you have that. Um, that's a good starting place that you don't. So I would start by removing waterfowl as much as you need to. Even if you don't think you need to, you're going to, have a, you're going to develop a much more diverse pond edge without constant waterfowl disturbance. It's just like balancing any other ecology. You want some disturbance and you want some rest. Um, we allow disturbance very early in the season, end of the winter, right as the water melts, the snow, uh, ice melts off. We sometimes allow bird access. They ch they're hungry in the late winter. They chow thousands upon thousands of amphibian eggs, and we take them out and fence them out of it before they eat all of the eggs and before they really hammer the edge excuse me, of the pond. If you see a typical duck pond, goose pond, you know what I mean by low, you know, low quality ecosystem. You'll see an edge that's muddy, that's usually eroding a little bit, that's just devoid of like a full wetland matrix of plants. You want 
wetland plants going from the edge of the pond, from outside the edge of the pond, all the way to in the pond, at least four to six, if not ten feet out into the pond. If you don't see those, chances are your your animal impact is too high. Generally, a good rule of thumb is at least a third of the pond surface area being in wet, a wetland ecology, with plants breaking the surface of the pond. They they bring oxygen in, they help process all sorts of different nutrients and provide niche habitat and food habitat, uh, food opportunities for everything, uh, you know, all the trophic levels from fish on down. Um, if you want to grow fish, you're trying to promote Daphnia and Gamerus and other organisms, and you're trying to uh, provide the structure that those organisms need instead of just feeding the pond, obviously feeding feeding the animals. So... One thing you should also do is conduct a bit of a catchment analysis, outline the watershed uh, of the pond, and um, determine how much water you can access in a year. You know, learn find out how much precipitation you get, say it's 40-some-odd inches, um, times it by the square footage um, of your watershed, and then times it, and, and know that in about in a thousand square feet, an acre is about forty-three thousand square feet. You get six hundred and some odd gallons of water per one inch of rain. Um, I think it's six twenty-five or six thirty-five. It doesn't matter if you know the exact amount. I just use the rule of thumb, like two-thirds. You get basically two-thirds of. Um, of, of gallons uh, per inch, you know, so you get two thirds of a thousand is about six hundred and some odd and change. Um, you co- of course have runoff, uh, runoff coefficient that you need to apply. You have infiltration, so if that's all paved, you'll get basically all of it minus some evaporation. If it's great pasture on sandy soil in the growing season, you may get very low. It depends on the time of year. It depends how heavy and how quick the rain or snow melt comes down. Um, because even in sandy soils with an awesome pasture or forest, if you get 10 inches in, you know, five hours or even a few inches in, t- t- you know, half an hour, you're going to start having runoff in most situations. So you can roughly get a sense of how many gallons you're going to work with over the season through the pond. That can help especially also determine your overflow spillway structure and how that's designed, how wide that needs to be and how you can deal with that, that pulse of overflow. Um, but the main thing is keeping the nutrient loading down and keeping the eco- ecological engine of the pond very active and high. Um, good luck with it, and I certainly would recommend not putting any chemicals in. We've found with doing designing and building various ponds with that are smaller um, and have even less flow than you might have, um, that we can have very high water quality with no electricity as well. Certainly no chemicals, not even with, you know, barley straw to keep the bacteria, the algae down, um, but also with no aeration. We avoid pumps whenever we can, avoid all active systems whenever we can, aiming for passive technologies and passive systems like plants and wetland ecologies. So I'm pretty sure you could achieve that. You do have more heat than we do here, and that's another factor, and sunshine's another factor. The more you can shade the water, the better as well. So there's many variables, as usual, to work with. Those are some of them, and I wish you best of luck. Thanks. Uh, Good stuff, as always, from Ben, and he is the man to ask. Uh, Let me just add to this. Um, I was at Ben's place, I guess, three years ago now, maybe four, three or four years ago. 
And it's beautiful. Uh, so first of all, if you ever get a chance to go to any kind of a course or learning experience with Ben's uh, location or just do a tour, uh, go. If you ever get a chance to just sit down and talk to Ben, do it. He is an amazing guy. But let me add to like on this question. I wouldn't hesitate for a second to, to, to swim in any of, of Ben's ponds. He's got ducks running around and everything. And it just, I, I wouldn't even, I mean, you just look at the water and you know you can swim in it. I don't know that I'd dip a cup of water in there and start drinking it or anything, but swimming? Sure. No problem. I've, I've swam in worse and I probably will again. Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, take another one. This one for Michael Jordan, aka the Bee Whisperer. And I gotta say that I'm glad this problem is for Michael Jordan and not for me. And honestly, it's really for Michael Jordan to help somebody with, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not for him to deal with. I'm glad I'm not the guy with the problem. How, how, how does that, uh, how's that work out to make it, uh, uh clear enough? Uh, I have a question for Michael Jordan. Recently I discovered a beehive hidden in behind a soffit in my house. It's up in the gable end, so it isn't the most accessible. I've started to get in, they've started to get into our house, so this makes the wife unhappy. Try to make sure a tea tree oil and peppermint oil deter them, hoping they would find a new home with no luck. Uh, this is from Mark. Uh, Michael Jordan, what do you do when you got a whole bunch of bees in your house? Uh, how do you get them out of there without getting stung a couple billion times? Well, Mark has recently discovered a colony of bees behind the soffit of his house. He has stated that it is in the gable end, and it is uh, the most and most hard accessible location. His honey is not too happy of having other girls come into the home uninvited, and he's been told to have them removed. He has tried a mixture of tea oil, peppermint oil, to deter them, hoping that they would find a new home, but with no luck. And wants to know how to get them out. Once they were out, will he need to remove the soffit and uh, clean the comb uh, to prevent new colony from moving in? <clears throat> Mark, my man, uh, you have three things you can do. First, if the problem is something that your family, friends, and neighbors are endangered because the bees being there can hurt them or harm them, I hate to say it, let's use the term, you might have to exterminate them. All right, now we've used that term. Uh, let's go ahead and get to option two. I do a lot of these. And with the section, second option, there's a few things uh, that you've got to think of. First is, uh, do you want to keep the bees? If you want the bees, you will need to prep to have them, getting your laws down, your education, your equipment needed. And this can be costly, starting at around $300. Or are you uh, going to let the cut man have them? Then are you going to do the cutout or yourself, or are you going to get someone to do it? Um, that's, that's what this job is going to be called, as a cutout. A cutout is anything from taking bees out of a home, shed, garage, or simply removing them out of a tree in someone's yard and relocating them safely. The number one goal is to get the queen, and if not most, but all the bees. By opening the wall frame roof or soffit, you will slowly remove the bees looking for the queen. As you do so, you cut out the comb, brood, and honey, placing the brood in frames and honey in the buckets. Then cleaning out the space, prepping for rebuild uh, after you've opened it. If you do the cutout, you will need empty frames, about 20 of them. Uh, this will be put the brood comb in. You'll probably only need 5 or 10, but it's better to be safe than sorry. You might have a winner there. Uh, two deep, uh, complete uh, hive. Uh, two deep, complete. 
Um, I say deeps because top bar has a lot of modifications need needed to save brood. So we're just going to go with the Langstroth model frames. Uh, rubber bands on hand, uh, lots of rubber bands. So the rubber bands are used to hold the cut brood frame in the frames. When putting the comb in the frame, make sure that the comb is the right side up and not upside down, or the bees will not use it, and all the honey or brood will not not uh, take shape because it's going to fall out. And don't be afraid to use lots of rubber bands to hold in the brood in the frames. The object is to get the bees to uh, facet with wax the brood frame back in there. Saws, all kinds, skill, reciprocating hands, file saws. Don't forget a file for your saw. That way you can keep your uh, saws filed and sharp to make good clean cuts to get in there and get out. You'll need a spray bottle of uh, 50-50 mix. Uh, put some bee healthy in there. Make a chamomile tea mix because you don't know if these bees have mite problems or something when you're getting in there. Smoker. You know, I don't use a lot of it because it pushes the queen and the bees away from the location. That's what bee, that's what smoke does. But you can use the smoke to push the bees into locations where you can use the bee vacuum without sucking up honey. Uh, honey in your bee vacuum will kill the bees. Cooler with some ice or Gatorade, iced tea, because you're going to be having a long, hot day. <laughs> Duct tape, it's a beekeeper's greatest friend. A white bed sheet in case you want to need to shake the bees out in front of a beehive to have them march in after putting the queen in the hive. A bee vac, a long extension cord, a generator to run it. Uh, look for a good bee vac. Uh, if you've never made one or you've never seen them, buy one if you're going to do this. You'll need a thermal Im imaging gun so you can see exactly where the hell the bees are in the wall. A uh, knife to cut out the comb. A couple five-gallon buckets to take the honeycomb scaffolding or ladder or something i prefer scaffolding that you can uh, work with because uh, working on a bee suit on a ladder sucks and get some good tsp soap cleaner or a good uh, simple green that every time after you remove anything out of those objects you want to clean it thoroughly down so you don't have mice ants or unwanted critters coming back and then you have to then rebuild it after you've taken the bees to a safe location <clears throat> so what you're going to do is you're going to look in the thermal gun, see where the bees are. You'll set up your hive, your frames with rubber bands on them so you can cut the comb out and put it in there. You'll get your lift ready, ladder or whatever it is, secured. Uh, make a good run down over the removal. You're going to cut it out. You're going to get in there. You're going to slowly work with the bees and get calm. And I mean, no, really get calm. You're going to be the giant ripping open a city full of workers that all know Kung Fu. So calm yourself. It is going to be a long day. A cutout requires work, setting up your equipment for the bee colony removal and the relocation for rescue. Make sure that the removing the covering material in such a way that it can be replaced easily and correctly by you or a contractor. And if uh, removing the bees in the comb, you need to find a simple way to do it for location. Generally, a honeybee removal is a process that takes from two to five hours and up to eight hours for two guys. I'd always get a friend that's dumb enough to help you. You never know what will happen when you work with the largest man-killer in the world. It all depends on how and where the bees are located in the building, how long it takes you to get to them, and the actual time to do the honeybee removal once you get to the comb. Now the part of the cutout that's the most wanted to hear about is uh, how do you find a guy that does it? Because <laughs> let's face it, it's dangerous, it's hot, and not a lot of people do it. 
Uh, you're not going to save the bees if you've never done this before. And if they're really worth their salt, a cut man will tell you that uh, after his first site visit, if he's just going to save brood or what he can really do. So he might even go back to the extermination uh, before the removal part because if you really can't get in there and do what you really want, he should be honest enough to tell you. Um, the cost of coming of someone coming out to remove the bees is around $500 an hour and sometimes up to $20,000 depending on what it takes to remove the bees safely and make a contractor able to repair it. I did one where the brick was uh, $30,000 replaced seven bricks. It was a sandstone, and they had to remake all the brick by hand, and you had to buy a pallet of them. You just couldn't buy the stone. So uh, just never rip open a wall to take the bees. If you can and you cannot replace it, work with a contractor. That's what I usually do, and now I've worked with so many contractors that they're calling me to help them when they find bees on remodels or repair work. And we're working together, so it's both profitable for both of us. Uh, if it's going to be a big job, I'd get your homeowner's insurance involved. And you might want to do that anyway to keep records in case you plan to sell. That way the, any remodels and stuff could be added for an upgrade. When doing a cutout, refi- find a reputable beekeeping company. Uh, there are some that are not good, uh, some that just rip open the home, kill the bees by sucking them up, not removing brood comb, for high population and leaving you with a big bill, a big mess of cleanup. Be aware of the bee, re- bee guru removals that they may say honeybee rescue, but they do not. The play of words can fool you. If they say they can save the bees, ask to see the hive later before final payment. That way you can actually see if they're saving the bees or not or fleecing you for your cash. Um, because if they're just killing the bees, you know, Get a beekeeper to say that they're honeybees, that he cannot remove them, and then call Orkin and save you a bundle. But uh, to have somebody come in, open your wall, suck them out, and say they're going to rescue the bees and, and charge you an astronomical price for a rescue and not really do it is bad. So be aware of that guy. Um, I just want you to remember that there are a lot of good beekeepers out there that do this, and this is a big thing that's coming up to save the bees. And there's a lot of companies coming out and people that are profitizing on this saying, we do honeybee rescue and I'm, I'm, I'm the guy and let's just face it, a, a real true guy is going to take it and they're going to tell you what they're going to do with it and, and you should be able to see them do it, wire in the frames and all the stuff. So really be aware and find one. Uh, now that you kind of know what you're up against, I'm not saying not to try doing this cutout, but... Uh, Finding someone that does it uh, can really save you a lot of time, a lot of money, and really save the bees. I think that is what you really want to do, is you're trying to really save the bees. Or you would just go ahead and get a fume board in there and fume those bees out and then seal it full of foam with an inoculant and just kill them in there. But I can see you're trying to save them. If you want to keep the bees or you want the cut guy to come and take them, you know, those are decisions you have to make. Um... Cutouts are hot, hard, and costly, but someone has to do it. I mean, if you don't get the material out of there, you will have pests, rodents. I mean, Orkin loves it when you call. They say, oh, the beekeeper can't come again. We'll kill them. You know, three weeks to four weeks later, they're back because of ants. Then they're back three or four more weeks because of the rodents. And then you've got other little bugs. And then, you know, if the comb's still left in there and after, you know, a year, it's a good home for a swarm rebuild. So, you know, Orkin loves you when you call them. So, you know, find a good cut rescue company and just not a removal company. Uh, 
like I said, be, beware of the honeybee rescue guys that, you know, if they can't show you, really look into that if you're going to pay that. Hey, this is a good question, Mark, and good luck to you. I also want to throw out that if you're going to take Jack Spirico's workshop in October, you will meet one of the best cut men in the business. Jason Smith from JCB's will be in Texas, and uh, he'll be at that event. He is a super cut man. I believe he does about two two a day during the summertime. Um, so that's something to really look out for. Um, I'll be uh, at the workshop in November teaching wintering your hives and hive modifications for better beekeeping. So if you haven't got your spot secured any one of these uh, events at Nine Mile Farm, you should really get in there. As always, support your local beekeepers by getting local honey. Buy your goods from cottage businesses for their superior product. And help your fellow man so he's not ripping you off by the guru scam artist. I am Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, wishing you a great weekend and a happy holiday. Great stuff from Michael, and I think, you know, really, my, my first instinct on that was, you, if you want them out of there, you got to get somebody that knows how to do it. You, you really do, and uh, it, it's not an easy job, it's not a fun job, it's not a job people want to do, but people that are good at it, um, they get it done. Uh, next up, I have a question for Gary Collins, and uh, Gary, of course, is the founder of the... Uh, Uh, the primal power method, and this question is about dealing with uh, indigestion. Uh, Gary, how do I deal with indigestion and heartburn? I'm plagued by frequent heartburn and have been since young adulthood. I hate taking medication, even over-the-counter. I've tried many things to help, but none to limited success. Heartburn gets so severe sometimes it causes me to vomit. Many times a simple act of drinking too much water or eating raw vegetables can cause heartburn. It will last for hours. I currently take Fetadine at 20 to 30 milligrams during one of these bouts. I hope you can offer some helpful advice. Thanks very much, Sean. Gary, how do we deal with this complex issue? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have another excellent question about heartburn and natural remedies. And before I jump into the natural remedies, I want to talk about heartburn. Um, as usual, it's a very complicated subject, so I will have to go quickly. We could go for 30 minutes on this alone, but I want to break it into two different two different ways. It, it, it can either be a mechanical issue or it can be uh, a chemical slash obesity issue or all three tied together. But I like to separate them in those two different categories. Now, for someone who eats the the standard American diet or a poor diet, high you know, highly processed carbohydrates, a lot of sugar, caffeine, sodas, um, smokes, drinks, alcohol. Well, these are all highly acidic. And what they do is they cause, uh, you know, you're dumping in more acid into an already very acidic environment, your stomach. It's meant to be acidic. That's where it, you know, kills, kills bacteria, harmful bacteria, any pathogens. And it also breaks to begins the breakdown of your food. Um, besides in your in your mouth and, and saliva, but your stomach is obviously much more acidic. But you, with that, that will happen is you it just ends up very a very acidic environment and it's not digesting properly because these are foreign substances to your digestive system. And what will happen is they'll start to reflux, and they'll reflux <coughs> through a couple different ways. But primarily, you have an LES, a lower esophageal sphincter. This sphincter is at the top of your stomach 
and tied to you the bottom of your esophagus. So it blocks the acid from refluxing back up into your esophagus. That acid is meant to be contained in your stomach. The tissues above that sphincter are very sensitive. So once you get that acid uh, up in there, it actually starts to burn. I mean, it's acid. It starts to burn away the tissues. So that's one way. Now, if you're obese, what can happen is on top of that, eating improperly and having that issue, the extra weight around your abdomen, putting pressure on your stomach and putting pressure on that sphincter, that can actually cause it not to close all the way by that added pressure on your stomach and your diaphragm. So that area, it's the same as a hiatal hernia. I know you guys have heard of a hiatal hernia. I'm sure you have. But that's how hiatal hernia works is it's actually that that part, lower part of your esophagus and that sphincter kind of moving around. It's become detached. There's actually a hole in which your esophagus goes through your, your diaphragm and then your stomach is contained in there. Well, that hole can either get torn or loosen up. And what happens is that starts to flop around. And with that flopping around, actually, and it's very hard to, to actually identify a hiatal hernia. I have found it incredibly difficult. It's misdiagnosed all the time. They miss a hiatal hernia very frequently because um, it has to move around for them to see. And it's very hard for you to, you know, imitate that movement when you're in a medical setting. So that can happen as well. And so then look at the mechanical issue, which is tied to that, is that LDS is not, not functioning properly. So it's not closing all the way or they have a condition, what's called a gaping LES, which means it stays open randomly. It just doesn't close. It just stays wide open. And with that, those gastric juices, if that thing is all the way open or partially open, they come right up through that opening and into your esophagus and into your throat. So that is why this individual, um, it could be a couple things. I don't know this individual's diet. But from what I heard of the symptoms, far as the vomiting, at times it gets so bad. And if they overconsume vegetables, raw vegetables and water, these are telltale symptoms of a dysfunctional LDS. And it's staying open or not closing properly because all that raw, that raw vegetables, that is high in fiber. And it is more difficult to digest than cooked vegetables, which helps break down that fiber. So that would tell me that that is putting pressure and that is slowing down the digestion in the stomach. And so that is pushing up against in that LDS. And if that LDS is not functioning properly and staying open, your your food's not going through your stomach or releasing from your stomach at a, as quickly as possible is a bad, bad deal for someone suffering from GERD or chronic uh, heartburn. And also the water issue. That tells me as well that when they're consuming the water and when you consume it, your your throat will open wide up. Those valves will open wide up because you don't want to choke, obviously. What will happen is if that lower valve is not closing, it's staying open, well, what that water's doing is it's splashing back up and the acid comes with it. Just, you know, just like pouring water from one glass to another from a height, it just splashes right out and up and makes a mess. Well, that's exactly what's going on with your stomach. And if you drink too much water after a meal, well, you're filling your stomach up again. So I recommend people who suffer from this do not drink any liquids with a meal or very little. I'm talking a couple mouthfuls. Let your food digest for 30 to 45 minutes 
and then you can consume liquids again. I would even give it up to an hour if you can do it. You want that stomach to start to empty out before you start putting liquids in it and filling it up to the top there because that's where that valve is. Now, um, I would like to delve into some of the natural, but I want to talk about proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers, which are the pharmaceutical version. You can get, uh, he's taking Pepsin right now, which is an over, over the counter H2 blocker. And the way these work is they, they block the production of stomach acid. They're, they work in different ways as far as affecting different pumps in the stomach, but that's how they basically work. And I don't want people to think that, again, you guys know I take an integrative approach of, of holistic medicine with modern medicine. And, and proper diet and putting all these pieces together to come to the best solution. I think they all have their place. Now, if you're suffering from bleeding ulcers or chronic, chronic GERD and you need to heal, heal your, your stomach lining and heal these ulcers, there's nothing in nature that can reduce the acid that far as a proton pump inhibitor or one of these H2 blockers. There just is nothing. So for a short period of time under the uh, direct, you know, working with your doctor, you will take these and it will definitely, if you're suffering from that, it will help. Problem is, if you have a dysfunctioning LDS that's staying open, these things are detrimental because they slow the digestion of your food down by blocking the acid. So that's another symptom that if you have an improperly functioning LDS or that it is constantly, it's got the gaping issue where it opens up and just stays open randomly. It's kind of like a muscle spasm. Well, with those, those acid blockers, it's going to slow down the digestion again, push the food up into your, into that sphincter, and then it'll, you'll have gastric reflux. It'll reflux up into your esophagus. Well, let's get into some of the natural remedies. Uh, licorice root helps uh, heal ulcers and lower stomach acid. Slippery elm bark is exactly what it says. It's very slippery, so it helps with uh, the easement of food when you're swallowing so you can take it with meals, but I'm going to give you a better solution. I've taken all these. Um, I suffer from heartburn as well. Long story. I have a mechanical issue. It's not from my paleo primal lifestyle. And I like to stick that in. The primal paleo diet has actually been known to actually cure heartburn because of going from an improper diet to a proper diet. But I don't know if he's tried this. He did not mention that. Uh, marshmallow root soothes the digestive tract. Uh, sweet orange peel helps to move food through the stomach more quickly. Like we talked about, food staying in your stomach for too long is, is a killer for people with GERD and also a high fiber diet because again, that's going to slow down the digestion in your stomach. It's, uh, so be careful with that. Don't be taking any, uh, any, uh, fiber supplements or anything like that. It, it can wreak havoc. Uh, ginger, which I sell and we've talked about, ginger does the same thing as orange peel or uh, the sweet orange peel, but be careful, no citrus. Stay away from citrus if you suffer from heartburn. Um, but ginger works and it speeds up and it also help, speeds up digestion and also helps production of saliva, bile, and gastric juices. So obviously, and it also helps with the function of the LES they have found with the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, also, uh, one is a bentonite clay. I've taken all these. So bentonite clay, is it's exactly what it is. Clay, you take a quarter teaspoon of it, maybe, or a whole teaspoon, mix it with water, drink it. it it's very alkaline. It's about 8.7 to 8.9, 7 being neutral, anything below 7 being acidic. So it works very well. It's high in calcium, magnesium, potassium, which are essential electrolytes, and also they are alkaline. 
So there we go with that. There's a lot of information here, but I want to give you a couple products. I'm running up against the 10 minute window and I always do. And I'm sure Jack is yelling at me right now, but here's a great product that I have found that works. Uh, traditional medicinal medicinals, uh, tea. It's called throat coat. It's an organic herbal tea. This is a fantastic product. All the things I just mentioned that work is in this tea. Um, also, uh, the ginger people have a naturally pressed organic ginger juice, which you can use, uh, mix it with water with like a quarter teaspoon of it. You gotta be very careful of ginger. It's very, very potent. And if you do too much, it'll actually aggravate your heartburn. So you can buy those and those work great. Also, I'm way over. Oh my God. He's going to kill me, but avoid hear the void. Things to avoid nuts, seeds, citrus, dairy, alcohol, and, uh, caffeine. Those are the big antagonizers to heartburn and GERD. And literally, if you're a chronic sufferer, you have to stay away from these. Trust me on this one. Uh, I hope that helps everyone. And thanks a lot. And if you have any questions, you can hit me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot. Great stuff from Gary. And Gary, know this. Some tips and tricks to keep your answers under 10 minutes will be on the way to you along with your question on Monday. Anyway, it really is a complex question, and Gary uh, does his best to, to meet my 10-minute requirement for the council members, but some of the questions you guys ask are really, really complicated. Anything biological and dealing with the human body is. So great stuff from Gary. Good advice there. Next question I have is for John Pugliano. Uh, I'm going to have a little bit different of a take because I think John answered this question from the viewpoint that it was being asked, and I'm going to answer the question from my viewpoint. Uh, which is, I don't care the way you're asking it. I care what's best for you. So you'll get both sides of this. So this is a question for John. How can I invest $100,000 right now? I have come into $100,000. It's truly additional money. My house and vehicles are paid for. I have no other debt. I have insurance and retirement funded and emergency cash reserves. I would like some advice on how to safely invest this money for 10 to 15 years to enhance my retirement. Thanks, Mike. So this is, a, I'm good. I got it all worked out. I got an extra $100,000 sitting here. What the heck do I do with it right now? John Pugliano, what say you? And when I tell you I disagree, I really don't. I'm just taking a different viewpoint in it. So go ahead, John, and I'll come back with my thoughts. Hey, Mike, thanks for your question. Uh, the way you framed it, I'm going to be interpreting it that you're talking about that 10 to 15-year period is really a hands-off, buy and hold, you know, set it and forget it. So forgive me if I'm misinterpreting your question. But I'm answering your question from the standpoint of a buy-and-hold strategy, which isn't what I would normally recommend, but I think that's what you're asking about. Uh, the other thing I want to start off with is the normal disclaimer that I can't give you specific advice because I don't know enough about your personal situation. But I can tell you what I would do if I had an extra $100,000 that I wanted to put away for you know, 15 years. I didn't want to worry about it, and I wanted it to be there to supplement all the other plans that I'm making for my retirement. We can look at this as kind of a Rip Van Winkle type portfolio where over the next 15 years it requires very little maintenance or thought or concern on your part and you know you wake up in 15 years and the money's there for you to use. Now as far as safety, the really only safe investment is something that's backed up by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. So that's going to be a bank account that's FDIC insured or some type of treasury bond or treasury bill. But we know that those type investments are not going to keep up with inflation, so I would rule that out right away. 
And so for me personally, since I'd be looking at this over a 15-year time horizon, I would feel comfortable putting $100,000 into the total U.S. stock market. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. I first want to comment about the overall safety and the diversification from being broadly in the stock market. I'm going under the assumption that in 15 years, the economy then is going to be pretty much like the economy is today. Now, I know there's going to be big changes. There's going to be shift in demographics and in automation and in a variety of things. But if there is some semblance of a modern global economic system in place in 15 years, you know, if the Earth doesn't get destroyed in a nuclear war or hit by a meteor and there isn't an electromagnetic pulse or something, right? If there isn't some disaster scenario, if the world is pretty much the way we know it right now, then the overall economic system won't be that much different than it is today. Yes, the U.S. debt will be larger. Perhaps the U.S. dollar won't be the reserve currency. But the global financial system is very resilient. It has some 180 or 200 year history behind it. It survived through depressions and recessions and world wars. And most likely it's going to be intact in the next 15 years. So based on that assumption, the reason that I would feel safe and diversified being invested in the total U.S. stock market is because we have a very advanced economy. And it's comprised of not only the transactions and interactions of our, you know, over 300 million people in the U.S., but also with the global interactions of, you know, some 7 billion people across the planet. And it's a meritocratist-type system where the most profitable companies and the most successful companies stay in business and get perpetuated while the laggards and the losers and those that are unproductive, they eventually go out of business. And so that diverse economy is made up of gold miners and healthcare providers and people in the transportation industry, manufacturers of various products, you know, service industries, finance, insurance, you know, whatever the needs and the interactions of human beings are, those needs are met through successful productive companies that make up the stock market. And as demographics or levels of debt or needs or fads or whatever changes over the years, the successful companies that provide those products and services will thrive. They'll always rise to the top. And so although technology will change, just like it has in the past, you have IBM and then IBM is replaced by Microsoft and then Microsoft is replaced by Google. And in 10 or 15 years, it's likely that someone will replace Google. But as long as you're broadly invested in the stock market, you're benefiting from all that productivity and growth. So I personally wouldn't fool with trying to seek broad diversification in stocks and bonds and international funds and all these different things or in permanent portfolio strategy that, you know, would include some elements of precious metals and different things. I would just stick with investing in the broad stock market because I'm getting all that. I'm owning a share of the utility companies that are paying dividends. I'm owning a share of the banking and financial industry. I'm owning a share of technology. I'm owning a share of gold and copper mines. I mean, all that is encompassed in the $17 trillion U.S. economy. And because our economy is so diverse and so globalized, without having direct ownership in any foreign stocks or any emerging markets, just by being invested in the broad U.S. stock market, I'm still getting exposure to the global economy. So I wouldn't even fool with trying to directly invest overseas. And so based on those assumptions and that premise, and just to keep everything simple, I would go to Vanguard.com and I would open an account. Vanguard is one of the most highly rated and respected investment companies, and they have among the lowest fees in the industry. 
I'd take my $100,000, I'd put it into the money market account, and then over the next five months, a dollar cost average that $100,000 into one of their funds that gave me broad U.S. market exposure. So I'd take basically $20,000 a month and put that into a mutual fund for the next five months. And the reason I do that is because right now we're in a correction and the market is actually pretty much at fair value. And while none of us can know what's going on in the future, it does look like fundamentals are breaking down and things might get worse before it gets better. So rather than putting all the money in at one time right now, I take a period of about five months to transition that money into the market. And the mutual fund that I'd invest in, and again, this is just my own personal opinion, I'm not offering any advice or recommendation, but I would put it all in the Vanguard Total Market Index. The ticker symbol on that is VTSAX. Victor Tango Sierra Alpha X-Ray. That gives you exposure to the total U.S. stock market. Large cap stocks, small cap stocks, dividend paying, growth. It's all right there. It's in one place. Vanguard only charges 0.05% to manage that money for you. So on $100,000, you're going to pay about $50 a year. I'd have the dividends reinvested in it. I'd let it sit there for 15 years. I wouldn't worry about it. The return rate on that would most likely be about 7% a year. You know, if you average it out over 15 years, there'll be ups and downs, peaks and valleys. But a 7% annualized return would be very likely. And so at the end of 15 years, Rip Van Winkle could wake up and his $100,000 would turn into over $275,000. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other strategies we can use. I personally like to take a more active approach. I'm not a buy and holder. However, in your scenario, if I just had an extra $100,000 and I didn't want to worry about it and I wanted it to be safe and be there for me with growth and appreciation over 15 years, that's exactly what I would do, Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund. Mike, thank you for your question. If you'd like to hear more of my market commentary and overall wealth-building principles, then please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. Jack, I'm interested to hear your opinion on Mike's question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Now, I basically said I disagreed with John on this. And, and the reality is I actually don't. I don't disagree with his logic or his reasoning or even his recommendation with a small adjustment. I, I feel right now there's no upside in this market, so there's no reason for your money to be at risk. Um, I would tell you that there's no way this market, in any way, shape, or form, is going to come back up at any measurable level, maybe one or two percentage points at the most in the next, in the rest of the year, through the end of the year. Um, I would just, I would, if you want to take John's advice, my personal viewpoint would be you put the money in the, the account with Vanguard, just don't buy anything till January. And start your dollar cost averaging in January and maybe stretch that thing out over 10 months, 10,000 a month. And the reason I say that is that I think next year is going to be a very wonky ass year with a lot of downs in it. And if you just pay attention a little bit on your buy-in schedule, I'd say almost every single one of those months is going to have one of those days where Wall Street falls on its ass for a day and just put your orders in on those days. And I think that that could have a marked improvement on your total return in 15 years, even if you go set it and forget it after that. So that, that's that's my caveat there. Um, you could do way worse than John's recommendation. Personally, I look at it a little bit differently. You're telling me I got everything taken care of. If I didn't have this money, 
my life would still be good. 15 years from now, I'm still going to be retired. If that's the case, we can have a little more fun with this money. This is money I might look at, how can I leverage this into real estate? Even if it's raw land, basic improvements, letting the land appreciate. And finding land that has low enough taxes on it that it's not going to cost you so much money that you wouldn't be better off with John's advice. Specifically, if we can find land that we can do something like lease out to someone to run cattle on while trees grow. That piece of land might be worth $100,000 today, half a million dollars more 15 years from now, even without doing an awful lot of work. Even without doing an awful lot of work. Let the cows do the work. Let the farmer paying you to do the work do the work and plug some trees into the ground. That's that's one way you might do it. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that's the kind of creative out-of-the-box thinking I would take with, with what I would call windfall cash. This is This is cash we can put a little bit more risk on. And in some ways, I think a land play is less risky than a stock market play because you can believe there will be some slaughtering in the next 15 years. So I think John would also couch that with, you know what, you could end up dollar cost averaging into that fund. And when we come into a period like now, you can just move it to cash and move it back over. Set it and forget it. John's not all about that. Neither am I. I'm nowhere near the active trader that John is. But I believe there's certain times where you just look at it and go, bad shit's coming. Get out of the way. And there's times like now where you look at it and go, bad, good, not sure, but not real good. So there's no reason for the risk. Get out of the way. I don't think you have to be anywhere near as active as John to um, to at least get out of the way of the telegraphed punches and kicks in the ass that the stock market throws your way. Anybody that tells you that putting money in the stock market right now is going to make you a good return by the end of this year, doesn't know their ass from a hill of beans. I'm telling you, there's just no return in it this year. I'm not saying it's going to go into catastrophic you know, d- decline like I did in 2008. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there's no reason to take the risk right now. That's just my opinion. With that, let's go ahead and take another question. I have a question this time for Brian Black. And uh, uh, this ble- this question is about tactical awareness uh, as to things like, well, you know, when I go into a place, where do I sit? And since Brian kind of reads the question here, uh, I'll just leave it with that. Brian, let's talk about tactical awareness uh, and situational awareness in public places and what your thoughts on that are, sir. Hey, TSP. This is Brian from ITS Tactical. I'm answering a expert question from Matthew, who had actually it's a quite a long-winded question, so I'd like to read it too because I think there's some important details in it. So Matthew asks, uh, when attending venues with large seating areas and crowds, where's the best place to sit so you're in the most beneficial position should something go wrong? And I think that's a lot of, uh, it's a big question that a lot of us ask ourselves too. So what factors need to be considered when making these decisions? So he's got some details here that I think are important to bring up. Uh, I was sitting in church this weekend thinking of what to do if there were an active, active shooter or fire, where the exits were, aisles in the chairs, et cetera. I'll just try to position myself so I can see as much as possible, but it seems there's so many variables that no one places best. If I sit in the center, I can go any direction, but I could get caught up in a panicked crowd. If I sit in the back, the bad guy would be, and I'm the first guy to get in his way. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. We'll love Thanks, Matthew. So, Matthew and everybody else, um, what I like to think about in this situation is a couple things I was taught. So I was taught to always look for buddies, weapons, and options 
And I know that might seem a little crass considering we're talking about a church, but at the same time, I think it's applicable here. So buddies meaning that you're always looking for people that can help you, and you're also looking for whoever might be the assailant, their buddies as well, because you need to know if it's one person you're dealing with or multiple people. So weapons, you're always looking for they might have on them and what weapons are available to you. Do you have anything at your disposal? Can anybody anything be used as an improvised weapon, et cetera? And then options are, what are their options? What what could they possibly do in the situation? And what are your options, such as your egress routes and your escape routes and things like that? So those are just a couple things to keep in mind. But also, along these points, um, I like to look for any kind of entry and egress points that I can find if I'm in that particular situation. Uh, meaning anytime I'm in a restaurant, I'm always looking for what exits are around. I'm always looking at if there's security cameras. I want to position myself, you know, obviously from my perspective in front of those so that whatever I'm doing is captured on security cameras should anybody need to review footage and things like that. But I'm also looking for uh, for hard concealment, too, or hard cover. So anything that possibly I can get behind that a bullet couldn't penetrate, um, things like that. So you should be looking for that. In the case of the church option that Matthew was talking about, um, since it's a place that he's at uh, quite regularly, I would actually see if I can talk to someone there and kind of look around and see what my primary exits might be, what my secondary exits might be, tertiary exits, all that kind of stuff, and position myself to where I can get out through one of those exits should I need to. Um, You also may want to sit in the back, too, as the first point of contact. Maybe you want to be the person that's there, um, that could actually make a difference and do something if something like that happened. So in any case, hope that helps. Um, the other thing I'd like to recommend, too, is just to uh, to look at the baseline, you know, look at where the primary entry point might be in the case of someone as a criminal. You know, think like a criminal. Look at those kind of things and try to, uh, try to look for those type of uh, avenues of escape or entry. So, again, um, thanks for your questions. Keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itstactical.com. Thanks for having me, TSP. Good stuff from Brian, and I can tell you that 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 I do this as well. I I think about that the, these types of things every time I walk into a place, and I know Brian does because we were actually in a place where we ended up discussing what we would do if something went wrong, because there was actually the potential for something to go wrong, and we had an entire plan laid out about thirty seconds uh, between the two of us. There was a couple guys playing darts in a bar, and they were really drunk, and the one guy said something really stupid. He said something like, who carries a gun in this day and age? And then the other guy says, this guy right here, and points at himself. And they were drunk. And uh, as soon as he said that, I told Brian, I said, this is what the guy just said. He looks over, he goes, it gets printing like crazy. So what we mean by printing is, it was really obvious where he was carrying. He was carrying the small on his back. It wasn't well concealed. Uh, and they were just getting drunk and carrying on. And a couple times mentioned the fact that the guy had a gun. And this is like a signal that, like, Somebody could do something stupid. So we just like, he's like, well, I'll take him out. You got his buddies. He's like, yeah, no problem. You know, and, uh, it was like immediate, like how we would handle this if these guys did, got stupid and started shooting the place up or something. And it was not like a big plan. It was just almost like without thought. And I think that level of tactical awareness is something we should all be striving for. And by the way, in this situation, because they were so close to us and because they were just being stupid drunk kids, it was not like, I'll shoot this guy twice 
in the head and wants them to throw it in Mozambique. It was, you know, it, it was, okay, I'll take this guy out manually. You know, this was like, unless something really, really bad went on, how we would defuse the situation. And, and I think we should all be striving for that level of awareness. And in that particular instance, it was only because I was aware of what was going on around me that we even knew that these guys that were being rowdy were armed and Again, it was the fact that they were talking about it in public out loud with big mouths that said, this could go bad. This could go wrong. We didn't call the police or, or whatever because it was college kids being stupid, but we made sure that we kept an eye on things until they settled down. And, and that's just one example. And every time we walk into a restaurant, my, my wife knows, let me choose my seat. Don't sit down. I don't care if the waiter pulled the chair for you. I'm going to assess the situation. I'm going to think about where I sit. And, and, and I'm going to put you in a position where if something goes wrong, my first response is your safety, and then it's my safety, and how can I help others? But my first response is her safety. I mean, that's immediate. Because I'm going to be taking, and I know people say, well, if you're not, if you don't take safety and you take taken out, there's no one to see to others. That's true, but I'm going to be doing that simultaneously because it's pre-thought of. And I know people think that like you're overreacting when you start thinking that way, but I'll tell you what, it would have saved lives this year. It would have saved last year, lives last year if certain people had thought this way, and if people will think this way in the future, it will save lives next year. This is as important as carrying a gun. It absolutely is. My next question, totally different category, uh, kind of a paleo-ish question, but this one for Chef Keith Snow. It says, how can one make great barbecue sauce and marinades without any sweeteners? Um, he's eaten Primal on and off for a while now, but recently decided to go very strict with elimination diet the whole 30 days to see if a couple issues might be diet-related. It's a bit more strict than I normally need, but I wanted to give 30 days exactly by the book just to give it an honest try. So, um, you know, he's run into the problem that many of us do. And this is a question from a guy named Brandon that uh, many of the barbecue sauces and marinades that you would use to make meat taste really good are loaded down with sugars. Uh, I can't think of a better person to answer that question than Keith Snow. So, Chef Keith, what do you say? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Brandon's question about a no-sugar barbecue sauce. Now, Brandon, I understand you've secured some amazing uh, grass-fed short ribs. Now, short ribs are just one of those cuts of beef that a lot of people don't mess around with. They don't understand what to do with them, but in the proper hands, they can be just magic. As, uh, as are most cuts of beef, a lot of guys out there, and there's probably a ton of guys listening, are strictly, you know, steaks on the grill people. And usually the, the primal cuts, you know, New York's and, uh, ribeyes and all that. And those are great. Don't get me wrong, but you're paying, you're paying the world for those things. If you learn how to cook some of these other less desirable cuts like short ribs and shoulder flaps and, um, just things like this, there, there's a, there's a bounty here. And, uh, so Brandon is onto something with these short ribs. Now, um, I understand that you don't want to have any added sugar. Now, keep in mind, even though things don't have added sugar, like, for instance, the Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauces that we make on the back of the pouch, it says no added sugar, and there isn't any added sugar. But then if you look in the nutritionals, 
under sugar, you're going to see, um, I don't know how much it is. It's not much, but this is because tomatoes naturally have sugar. So we have to put in the sugar content that's in there. So just keep that in mind because we're going to talk a, a bit about uh, making a fruit-based barbecue sauce. Now, you're not going to add any sugar. You're not going to add any fruit juice, so to speak. And that was another problem that you had with your kind of strict diet. And I don't recommend uh, fruit juice. We don't consume uh, any fruit juice, and my kids have never had um, a habit of drinking fruit juice from the store, you know, that high C or whatever the heck they call it. So if it's not fresh squeezed, we really don't do it because there is um, – this stuff is, is not good for, for, for people that don't want their blood sugar spiked. Um, but moving right along. So let's focus on um, just talking really quickly about what is good about the sugar content in barbecue sauces. When you go to the store and you buy one, um, it really doesn't matter if it's a quote-unquote gourmet one or just a, you know, a Cattleman's or one of those. They have a very high sugar content. You can just look in those carbohydrates and you'll see, you know, uh, 38 carbohydrates and 29 grams of sugar, whatever. And Usually it's it's something like corn syrup in most of the commercial brands. Sometimes they'll have, you know, cane cane juice, you know. At the end of the day, if it ends in an OSE, like a sucrose or a fructose, it's some type of a sugar. Even if you drink milk, you're getting lactose, and that's uh, milk sugar. So in your case here, if you want to eliminate added sugar and honey and agave and all that kind of stuff, you still can sweeten it up by using something called uh, stevia. And this is a pretty remarkable thing for folks that don't want any sugar um, or carbohydrates because that's the other thing. It's very difficult to find something sweet that's not loaded with carbs. So some people can have you – know, they can have sugar – but they're on a low-carb diet, and anytime you get honey or anything like that, you're you're jacking up the carbs. Now, stevia um, pretty much has no carbs, and it's sweet, and it's just a leafy plant. It's in the chrysanthemum family, and it's just an herbal sweetener, and you can grow this stuff fairly easy. I, I don't know what the zone friendliness is, but you can grow it fairly easy, and you can use it to sweeten up a variety of things. What I do is I buy a brand called Pure Via, P-U-R-E-V-I-A. If you go to purevia.com, you can see what it looks like. And I've been fooled because there's another brand out there um, that's not as good, and it's kind of got the same sort of logo thing with a green leaf on it, and, and I made, made the mistake of buying the other one. And uh, that one has a pretty heavy aftertaste. Now, the Pure Via doesn't. So you definitely could use that to sweeten up um, some barbecue sauce. But let me give you a quick recipe. I like to make fruit-based barbecue sauces with beer in them, by the way. Um, either blackberries or dark sweet cherries are awesome here. So what you do is you make your choice between one of the two of those, and um, you put about one pound, and you can buy them frozen in bags, organic frozen berries, no problem, works perfectly. Um, you'll put it in a sauce pot, even, even if it's frozen, put it right in a sauce pot over medium heat, cover it, cook it about 25 minutes. What's going to happen to the cell walls in there are going to break down. They're going to re release natural fruit juice, also pectin. P-E-C-T-I-N, pectin, that's the stuff that you add when you're canning things to give uh, a gel or, or a, a thickness. And uh, the fruits like that definitely have pectin in, in it, as does tomatoes, incidentally. Um, so 
once this cooks for about 25 minutes, remove the cover and just take your potato masher and just bash them up a little bit. And you just want to break it down. Then you're going to put it, put a, a strainer over a bowl of fine mesh strainer. You pour this fruit mixture in there and take a rubber spatula and really press it in there, rub it back and forth. And you're going to get any seeds or skins are going to get stuck in, in the sieve and the, the juice and the pectin and all that will go into your, your bowl. Let that sit off to the side. Then in another pot, you're going to add some oil and butter and garlic and onions and a green pepper. And you're going to cook this stirring often for about 15 minutes. Now, don't worry about the recipe, guys. I will go over and um, post it in the comments for today's show. I'll also post it on the Facebook page for the Survival Podcast. So it will be there. Now, um, once you've cooked this stuff for about 15 minutes, add a chipotle pepper. And that is an awesome thing that comes in. It's stuff called adobo sauce. Very smoky. This would definitely be my choice for this. Um, then there's also ketchup in this recipe. But, Brandon, ketchup, again, definitely has some sugar. And if it's not a good brand, it could be uh, added sugar. So I would probably omit the ketchup. And um, I would definitely add in the tamarind paste that you're going to see in this recipe. Now, tamarind is a pod, and it's got a super sticky, like, not black, but very dark brown, you know, uh, fibrous stuff. But it's magic in, in Southeast Asian cooking. It's really great here, and it will replace some of the stickiness that you get from a sugary barbecue sauce. Then you're going to add in some herbs, I mean some spices, coriander, which is the seed of the cilantro plant, and cumin, salt and vinegar. You'll bring it to a simmer, cook it for about 15 minutes, allow that to cool. You'll add in your uh, fruit puree and then the beer. Now, I like to use porter, a good dark porter. If you have a stout, that's fine, a chocolate stout, maybe a raspberry porter would, would rock in here. So you mix that in. Now, if you've got time, if you can make this the day ahead of time and let this stuff refrigerate. Something happens that's magic. Um, instead of using it right away, you refrigerate it and then take it out the next day. And once it sets up and kind of just does this cooling off thing and everything sets back up, it becomes better. I don't know why. It's just the way it is. So now getting to those um, short ribs, you know, that's a, a fairly tough cut. It definitely needs some um, low and slow cooking, I would almost suggest taking those short ribs and putting them in a steamer. And if you wanted to take some uh, the other half of the beer and put the beer in there and steam them, not on super high, but steam them for about 15 or 20 minutes first. Now, you're going to lose a little bit of the fat, but no big deal. Then take them and, and uh, I would put whatever dry rub you have on them. Then you can grill them a little bit and start um, continuing the cooking and when you feel that they're tender enough to your liking, that's when you're going to add the barbecue sauce. Definitely don't add it in the beginning and leave them on the grill because the stuff will burn. This is a mistake that a lot of rookie cooks make is they'll coat up ribs or chicken, whatever, right from the beginning in sticky, high-sugar content barbecue sauce. And then they'll just devastate it on the grill and they'll bring it to the plate and it's just got that kind of burnt-on black char. Now, number one, that stuff is not... Um, tasty, but it is not healthy to eat a lot of that burnt char from the grill. It's definitely got things in it you don't want to consume. So you cannot put um, any kind of a barbecue sauce, tomato-based sauces, fruit-based sauces 
on something you're going to grill for a long time because it's, it's going to burn up. But once it's already pretty much cooked, then you take your basting brush and you can baste it and leave it go a little longer. Now, you do want it to caramelize, but there's a big difference between ashes, burnt black stuff, and lovely caramelization. And you definitely will not achieve the latter if you go off to check your email or you go in to talk with your wife or whatever. You need to stay by the grill and uh, make sure that it's done properly. Now, when you take those... Um, Ribs off the grill, you definitely can add a little more sauce on top and serve them, and you're probably going to be really happy with the results. Now, I've made this um, this barbecue sauce that I'm going to post a recipe for, in um, with um, excuse me with cherries and it rocks. It's great with blackberries either way. So a really neat recipe, and I, I used it over the summer on ribs um, and some other things that were kind of smoky and barbecuey, and it, it's it's really great. So um, if you have any questions, Brandon, don't hesitate to uh, shoot me an email, Keith at HarvestEating.com. And just so you guys and gals out there know, I answer a lot of questions during the week from this audience. People just have a, a question about cooking. And uh, you can definitely email me. I'll do my best to get back to you. Uh, a quick shout-out about those pasta sauces. So many of you asked for the coupon. What I've done is over at Amazon.com, if you search for Thoughtful Harvest Pasta Sauces, you're going to see the listing pop up, and you can choose your flavor. There's a drop-down there where you can choose the amount. If you buy five bags, you're going to get a $9 discount discount. So um, go over and do that. Or if you just want to order it off of harvesteating.com, that's cool too. I definitely appreciate everybody who's ordered so far. Thank you so much for supporting that product launch. And Jack, thanks so much for you, for you, man, and what you do. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. Take care. And as it usually goes with Chef Keith, and now I'm hungry. Um, next up, I have a question for plant propagation expert and expert in permaculture function stacking, Nick Ferguson. This question is about sea berries and sea berry propagation. So, Nick, what say you about propagating sea berries? Hey, TSB listeners, this is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer Gary's question. Sea buckthorn propagation. So, this is a dioecious plant. That means there are male and female plants. So you, if you want berries, you need females. But you have to have the males to pollinate the females or you won't get any berries. So differentiating between the two of them, um, the male plants will produce only flowers and pollen. The female plants produce flowers and berries. So the male plants are going to have larger buds and they're going to kind of stick out more. They'll protrude more, and they'll have six to eight scales on the flower buds, and that's one of the key defining characteristics of those. Now, the female plants have smaller buds. They're more elongated, um, and they only have two scales, and they're a little bit harder to see and pick out on the plants than the male flowers. Now, I've also read that in spring, the... Axillary buds are more prominent on the male plants and that you can reliably separate them at that time, and that's seedlings. So what you might want to do is if you're starting any seedlings is to separate the ones that you think have more prominent buds on them and see if that works for you. It might take a little bit of a trained eye, um, but I give that a shot, and and likewise in the spring, look at your your suckers and see if if the suckers look like they have more prominent buds on them, 
then those are, from what I've read, again, um, those are probably going to be the males. Now, if I really wanted uh, to cut corners and, and make sure I had plants maturing quick enough, then I would I would dig up those suckers and I would trace that root back to the parent plant and I would make sure that what I was digging up was, you know, the female plant suckers so that I could get more berries. Now, if you want male um, plants, then, of course, dig up the male suckers. Now, there is some speculation about growing these from root cuttings and because they sucker so easily, um, if I were you, I would really try um, taking some cuttings from the roots. And so think about a carrot. There's going to be a terminal end and there's going to be a basal end. So that terminal end is the pointed end of the carrot. And the basal end is the end where the leaves sprout out of, right? So you're going to do the same thing with your root cuttings and again, I would, if you're wanting more berry producing bushes, find one of your female plants and dig up some of the roots. And those lateral roots are really good for this. And make sure you keep them oriented the right way. And the basal end is the end that is closest to the root crown of the plant. And the terminal end is the end that's pointed away from it. So you can take as many cuttings of those lateral roots as you want and as long as you have them all oriented with the basal end up, it's going to make this really easy. So you take those cuttings, four inches or so, and you're going to plant them. I would plant them in little, you know, half-gallon pots or so. And I would just barely put the basal end of that root at the soil surface, and I would keep them moist. Maybe you want to cover these with some newspaper all winter long. And that'll callus and heal over. And then in the spring, it should, if all goes well, it'll send out new shoots. And you'll want to just make sure you uncover that and, and let those grow up. And you should be able to grow a lot of new plants from root cuttings with those. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that. I've never done this before. This is just the research I've done and the experience that I've had with, with plants that sucker as well as sea buckthorn seems to sucker. So that's what I do. I'm like I said, I'm no I'm no expert on on sea buckthorn, but if I were to experiment with it, that's exactly what I'd do. So best of luck to you. Um, I'd be I'm, I'm curious to find out what you what you discover if you uh, if you find out that rooting those from uh, root cuttings works great. Please email me and let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Um, with that, everyone, please check out my Earthworks workshop. It's coming up. It's going to be fantastic. Jack is going to be teaching there, too. We're going to be getting a lot of swales put in, three different duck ponds, and and I'm setting up a whole fertigation system. This is going to passively fertilize and irrigate a market garden area and my my current garden area. And, man, it's going to be really cool the way we link these things together. You're going to learn how to dig these swales with a two-man shovel, just a one-man shovel, an excavator. We're going to show you how to do it from small scale up to large scale. It's going to be awesome. 
And you can find out more about that at my website, permacultureclassroom.com. Y'all have a great weekend and a happy holiday. Next up, a uh, question that I mentioned in my opening segment about pecans for Erica Strauss. Uh, this is from Tom. Said, said, Tom says, any uses for huge crops of pecans, hopefully including long-term storage. Citywide crop of pecans coming in in Norman, Oklahoma. We could easily collect hundreds of pounds, but crops come every three or four, come on every three or four years. How can we use and store these pecans for the long haul? Thanks, Tom. So, Erica, what do we do with hundreds of pounds of pecans, and how do we make them last? Hi, Tom. Well, congratulations. Hundreds of pounds of pecans is quite the haul. Up in my neck of the woods, the local nut for wild harvesting is hazelnuts, but the rules for the longest possible storage of tree nuts is pretty universal. So well stored, you can expect your pecans to last two years or more, but poorly stored nuts that are really rich in oils like pecans will begin to deteriorate in really just a few months. So the biggest threats to long term tree nut storage are moisture, oxygen, and heat. Excess moisture makes nuts prone to molds and mildews, and both oxygen and heat will turn the oils in the nuts rancid. Rancidity is the real killer when it comes to nuts and long-term storage, so that's what you really want to avoid. Here are the variables you want to control to get the longest best storage out of your pecans. First, you want to make sure you harvest your pecans as soon as they are fully ripe. This is just as they drop from the tree, typically. If you see a lot of husks that are still clinging to the shell of the pecan, your nuts probably need a little bit more time to ripen. But when the ripe nuts begin to fall consistently, if you can, you might want to go and shake the pecan tree or knock down the nuts to encourage the ripe ones to fall so you can gather them. What you don't want to do is let the pecans hang out on the ground for any longer than necessary. They start to absorb excess moisture and they pick up all kinds of fungal and mold spores. And when that happens, decay can really begin to set in. It's also a good idea to cut open a few pecans as you harvest, just to check on the quality of the nuts as you go. You're looking for shells that are fully filled out. The nut meat inside the shell is going to be, it's going to seem a little green, not necessarily in color, but it'll just have that sort of moist, fresh look that a fully cured dry nut won't. But if you see anything that's like shriveled, um, that's not good. Blanks are obviously bad. Uh, shells that are much lighter than other shells around them, that's a bad sign. So as you're going through and harvesting your pecans, you want to pull off any residual holes that you see that might be clinging to the shells. And then you want to start to dry your pecans. And this drying step is very important because the moisture level of the freshly ripe, freshly harvested nuts is too high for long-term keeping. So you want to get that moisture level down so that your nuts will keep longer with less chance of mold or decay. To dry pecans, you spread them out on a screen or an old clean sheet, someplace shady and dry with good air circulation. Ideal temperatures for drying are about 75 or 80 degrees. You want this process to be fairly gentle and slow. This isn't like when we dehydrate fruit at 140 degrees or so in a food dehydrator. This is a pretty gentle process. And if your summers are humid, it can sometimes really help to just put a standard household 
fan pointing at your crop of nuts to help speed up that drying. Drying the pecans will generally take four days to two weeks, depending on when you harvest them, how much moisture they had in them, what your temperature is, what kind of airflow you get. And when the pecans are fully dry, the nut meat will be really brittle and it will snap easily. And the membrane between the two halves of the kernel will be dry and will peel away from the nut meat itself quite easily. So now that you've made sure that your pecans are dry, the most important thing you can do for long-term storage is to just minimize access to heat and oxygen. Put simply, the more you can exclude air and the colder you can keep your pecans, the longer they're going to last. So pecans stored in the shell, for example, will last far longer than pecans that are stored shelled. And with shelled pecans, whole halves will last longer than little bits and pieces because less of the nut surface is exposed to oxygen. Now, similarly, nuts stored at room temperature won't last as long as nuts stored at fridge temps, and then freezer temps are even better and will keep your nuts freshest, longest. So probably the absolute best way to store the bulk of your pecans would be to keep them in the shell in a sealed mylar or heavy-duty plastic bag in a chest freezer. And if you do that, you're looking at a storage life of over two years. But, you know, let's be honest, not many people have the spare chest freezer space to keep all of their nuts in the shell and frozen. So another option would be to shell your pecans and then to put the pecan halves out of the shell into one of those vacuum seal meal type bags and suck all the excess oxygen out, or you could use a heavy-duty freezer bag and squeeze all the excess air out. So stored like this in a freezer bag, heavy-duty plastic, with as much oxygen pulled out as you can manage, you're going to get close to two years from your pecan halves, probably. And as they age, what will happen is they'll tend to go stale but not rancid at those freezer temperatures. And that's nice because even if they're not quite as fresh as they were, they're not that sort of acrid, rancid, nasty flavor that's just hopeless. Like stale nuts, you can sometimes still work with. Rancid nuts, you just have to chuck. They're disgusting. Now, if cold temperature or freezer storage just isn't an option, you can keep your pecans at room temperature. If you keep them um, loose in their shell, the pecans are going to last between 6 and 16 months. And I know that's a pretty big range, but it depends on how dry the nuts are and what your average house temperature is and how cool and dry your nuts stay. Now, compare this to shelled nuts, which can start to really decay at room temperature at even three to six months. You start to really see a big loss of quality. But wherever you store your pecans, keep them in an airtight sealed container and keep them away from things like onions and garlic and really intense smelly items because the pecans will tend to absorb odors of the thing that's around them. So Tom, in terms of how to use your glut of pecans, I'll just throw out a few of my favorite ideas briefly. And if anyone wants specifics on any of these ideas, just leave a comment in today's show notes and I will do my best to respond in the comment section. The first thing I'd mention is spiced candy. Candied pecans, which are very easy to make, and they're great for gifts and for holiday snacking, and they taste really good on fall and winter salads. Spice candied pecans in a salad with like pear, for example, is just a classic delicious winter salad. I like to combine um, maple syrup, real maple syrup, and fresh thyme and a little bit of cayenne, and uh, coat the pecans with that, candy them up, and you get.
get something that's a little bit sweet, but a little bit spicy too. For the holidays, if you make a blue cheese platter with some of these cayenne maple thyme pecans and uh, some fruit, maybe some pears or some apples, and then a really nice creamy blue cheese, you'll have a, a really elegant cheese platter that your guests will love. Now, a maybe more straightforward option is pecan butter. And this is a true gourmet product if you have to go buy it in the stores. I looked it up on Amazon, and a cup of this stuff goes for like 15 bucks. But if you can get your pecans for free, this is an even more frugal version of that old classic survival food, peanut butter. Pecan butter uh, in texture and in consistency is a lot like natural almond butter. You can spread it on toast or apples. Uh, you can use it in smoothies or bake with it. And to make pecan butter, it's very easy. You just toast your shelled pecans and then blitz them in your food processor until they're quite smooth. You can add a bit of salt at the end to taste if you like, uh, or you can add in a few chocolate chips with your pecans and you can make a kind of homemade chocolate pecan butter, which is sort of like Nutella, but even more delicious. Speaking of delicious, pecan or alternately walnut caramel infused bourbon is a big favorite around my house for the holidays. And this is a great way to turn um, a kind of a mid-range bourbon into something absolutely incredible if you enjoy a periodic boozy drink. So basically, you just make a simple caramel by melting down some brown sugar with a little bit of butter, add in some chopped pecans, cook those until they are fragrant, and then add the pecan caramel to a decent bourbon. I like Jim Beam for infusing. And then you let this infuse for a week or two and then strain the bourbon and then pop the strained bourbon in the freezer. Freezing this causes any of the fat from the nuts and the fat from the butter to rise to the top and harden on top of that flavored infused bourbon. And then while that fat is all hardened from the cold temperatures in the freezer, you strain off the hardened fat and your infused bourbon is ready to sip by the fire while you do fun stuff like shell another batch of pecans. Guys, this has been Erica of Northwest Edible Life. Come find me anytime. Say hi at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Keep those questions coming. I sure appreciate them. And Jack, I sure appreciate you making this great show available for all of us listeners. Folks, thank you again, and I will chat with you next week. Great stuff, uh, as always, from Erica. She's just a fantastic communicator, guys. Several of you, several of you have commented on that. And keep the questions coming for her and, and, and make them as diverse as you want. Get on over to northwestedible.com and, and, and see the stuff that she has going on over there because, uh, uh, this gal knows her stuff, especially in, in smaller scale urban situations, urban homesteading, urban permaculture, cooking, lacto-fermentation, you name it. She's got it down pat. Uh, we're going to finish up today with expert council member Paul Wheaton. And the question for Paul is always, is basically telling us, tell us what's going on with Wheaton Labs and, uh, with your, your crazy experiments up in the dukedom of Wheatonville in the wilds of northwestern Montana, Paul. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories near Missoula, Montana. So it rained the last few days. Oh, delicious rain. Um, when you're growing a bunch of stuff without irrigation, rain is so important. And we have had a particularly dry year. 
Uh, we've got forest fires going all around us. Um, uh, we had a couple of days where it got so smoky that uh, some of our people went into town to get away from the smoke. Um, and we've been holing up inside the house with the air cleaners going. Actually, it's been a little of the reverse. This is Jocelyn, by the way. <laughs> um, we usually have better air quality because we're in the hillsides than down in the bowl where Missoula is. However, we did have some uh, forest fires that were a lot closer to us last week. And so the air quality was pretty poor even here before the rains hit. So, uh, yeah, normally the air quality here is great, but... Forest fire season, boy, yeah. Uh, but then a lot of the times uh, in town itself, in Missoula, the, the air quality was much worse than here. We had people coming out here. Yeah, they, they were they're like, oh, it's so bad. They're, they're driving out here to, to help with projects because it's like the air quality is much better. So, yes. um, so rain, glorious rain, not only putting out the fires, but also cleaning the air and, uh, irrigating all of our stuff, which was, which is in desperate need. We're getting a lot more mulched. Uh, you know, we got a guy here, Fred, who's been just a mulching fiend. We discovered that some of the straw that we put up, uh, last year had molded. And so, uh, that's all going to mulch now. So we've got lots and lots of straw mulch. Um, we uh, had to go into Seattle uh, this last week, a few days ago, uh, for a funeral, and we just kind of did a shout out on Permies that, uh, hey, we're going to Seattle, anybody want to meet up or whatever, and and a uh, big crowd, 30 people, yeah. uh, and they had to stop it because the the host could only handle that many, um, and right. there was at least one person that was a TSP listener, um, but... I think there was a lot of crossover there, and... and- the host was awesome. Uh, she just moved in there and had already started planning some things and had a big double lot in, um, with fruit trees, already big established fruit trees and stuff. So she was very excited and everybody was talking gardening, of course, and growing food. Oh, yeah. And, and so we did a little Q&A for a while. Um, and, and it's like, uh, we got started on the, the whole, uh, cardboard and, uh, newspaper being used, uh, in, in horticultural endeavors. And I'm one of the few people that's against that. And, right. um, I mean, uh, the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holzer is all for it. Uh, Bill Mollison's all for it. The, the fantastic Jeff Lawton is all for it. Uh, most, most everybody but me is for it. So clearly I'm a doofus, <laughs> but, I've, uh, there, in fact, we've got a long, long thread about it at permies.com about why. And there's even a video. There's a video of me speaking at some event and I'm, I'm, it's just a clip like three minutes long of me just talking about, uh, why I'm against cardboard and newspaper in horticultural endeavors. And I'm also not a big fan of lasagna gardening. I, I think lasagna gardening is a hundred times better than no gardening. Um, but, you know, like Hugel culture is a hundred times better than that. Hugel culture done correctly because too many people try to do Hugel culture and lasagna gardening like together, and that's a I, I believe that's that's a horrible idea. But and I believe again, I'm I'm kind of on my own little island on that one. I think that there's not a lot of support for that. Well, and the reason you're against the cardboard and the paper is because of the potential toxins. They change the chemicals all the time with how they manufacture paper and cardboard, and it's basically synthetic glues um, and other chemicals. Well, it's it's more like, I mean, there's a way to make paper that's totally cool with me. It's totally in my comfort zone. But it's much, much cheaper for them to, to use chemicals to help break down the lignans, and those chemicals can be really nasty. 
And then as you try to explore that, you know, one of those chemicals, they'll change the chemical. And right. so it's like, ah! But, and, and, but that's covered in, in excruciatingly, excruciating detail out of permies.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we're about, here, here at Wheaton Laboratories, we're about to start planting the living fence, uh, from seed. And most of the work will be mulching. So that's, that's the very topic. And, uh, we're going to bring in some mulch this year, but I do not like to bring in Outside materials. I prefer to grow my own. So we're going to also be um, planting a bunch of stuff this winter because um, when you plant sweet clover, the best time to plant it, I believe, is uh, – and, and sweet clover is a fantastic uh, plant that you can grow to build organic matter. Uh, it's a great chop and drop kind of thing. It, it fixes nitrogen as well as has a lot of organic matter to it. But I believe the best time to plant it is when it is actively snowing outside and, and then you scatter the seed. Uh, so we'll be doing that this winter. We are going to bring in some uh, pine and spruce shavings, and and I've been very very careful to source this uh, from a place that gets these trees from uh, forest land where they do not use persistent herbicides. Um, and and a lot of people believe that I'm you know nuts in this space also. This was part of the conversation at that get together at the potluck we had in Seattle too was bringing in wood chips because especially in an urban area. The wood chips could be from a tree from the middle of a lawn, right? And they use persistent herbicides. And and the thing is, is persistent herbicides are being sold as the environmental solution. Like, oh, it's so much more environmentally friendly than the other herbicides. And so this is like a big step forward. You can have all of your weed-free grasses and lawns um, without having, you know, as much environmental impact. But the, the truth is, is that it's far, far worse. Um I mean, if you wanted to take a perspective, a view of it, you, you could make that case. But as, as per usual, this is a branch of lying called marketing. And, and so, uh, people will get people knocking on their door. Oh, I'm in the area and I'm, I'm fixing people's stuff. I'll, I'll spray this for you. Anyway, so urban trees tend to be loaded up with persistent herbicides. Um, the, the tree will take it in and store it in the wood. And then when you go and you use those shavings, it may not kill your plants. But it may stunt the growth. And so, plus, you know, when we're doing this stuff, we're all kind of seeking, like, we want to know the story of our food. And, uh, and it's like, that's, we want to know it's pure. We just want to know it's pure and good. And, and so if you go down this path of bringing something in like that, you, you don't know it could contain that stuff. True. Uh, we got the big thing is for innovator stuff, we are bringing in all the materials for our innovators event. And um, so it's like we're trying to figure out we, – we're getting a good, clear idea of what we're going to try to innovate during the Innovators event for the Rocket Mass Heater Innovators event. And so uh, we need to do that in order to get in all the appropriate materials. Two Rocket Mass Heaters for tiny houses. So we've got two tiny structures here, and we'll put a Rocket Mass Heater in each of them. We're going to attempt – Peter Vandenberg is um, uh, going to attempt – to do two four-inch systems, which four-inch systems are virtually unheard of in rocket mass heater world for anything that works well. Yeah. Uh, the big one that everybody's excited about is the rocket hot tub, and it seems like the debate about how we're going to design this is going around and around and around. There's a big thread on Permies about what design do we want to use. Uh, we're kind of talking about putting it on skids so we can move it around. Uh, the function of using a rocket hot tub is less smoke uh, because there are wood heated hot tubs out there already, um, but but they are quite smoky, uh, like the snorkel system. Uh, but the, with the rocket design, we want to have less smoke, 
heat the water with one-tenth of the wood. And uh, we also want to have something that can also work with uh, solar and uh, compost systems. Uh, we got a huge quartz bell in that's the size of a barrel. We're going to see a rocket mass heater, like, see it. Because the, the bell the is clear. Smoke, the, the Taurus action the with Taurus. the smoke. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to do that. That'll be Ernie. Um, faster, easier, cheaper rocket mass heaters. Um, uh, shippable cores, smaller and cheaper. Uh, using a car radiator for easy, cheap, and portable rocket mass heater. Uh, we're going to uh, run a rocket mass heater on waste oil. Uh, as one of the innovators is going to be working on that. Uh, convert a gas or electric oven to run on rocket mass heater technology and rocket cooktops. So we've got six innovators that are going to be here. Um, I, I think, and it's going to last, uh, almost two weeks. And so, uh, we've still got a few tickets left, but, um, all our work right now is gearing up for that event. Yeah. Getting supplies. All right. I think that's all we got for now, Jack. Talk to you next week. I'll tell you what I love about Paul. I'll tell you what I really love about Paul. Paul, for a number of years, talked about all the things that he wanted to get done. And over the years, I think Paul realized, like, I can't do it all. I can't do it all, but I can I can help others do it, and I can do a lot of it, and I can get a lot of things done. And, and along the way, Paul discovered a site called Kickstarter, and he ran a little Kickstarter to test CFL light bulbs and learned how that system worked. And he put together some pretty incredible stuff, and he was able to fund purchasing, you know, his 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 little dukedom up there. His duchy is the proper term for a dukedom, by the way, uh, up near uh, in Missoula. And he got that piece of land, and he inspired enough people to come up there and give it a shot. And not everything worked out, and not everything ever does work out. But he's got people figuring out how to solve problems and making that information known to others. And that is fantastic, and I'm very proud to call Paul Wheaton my friend. And uh, Paul and I will never agree on everything, but that doesn't matter. What we do agree on is that we need to be living a better life, and there's ways that we can make things better for other people and ourselves. And uh, that kind of leads me up to my conclusion for today's show. As, as you've noticed, I have been changing up TSP's music at the end. Instead of ending every day with the full version of The Revolution Is You, which Greg Yeos wrote personally for this show, and, and I contributed to the, the, the lyrics on it a little bit and to the direction of the song. Um, and I'm very proud of that song, and I think it's, it really embodies what we're all about here. But I, I have, I've strived lately to find music that many of you probably have never heard or you go, oh, I remember that song. And, and sometimes it's just, this is a good piece of music. There's no real message in it. It's just a good piece of music. Um, sharing things from you know from Warren Zevon with you, and and there'll be more of uh, more more of Warren Zevon coming in the future. I'll be playing some music by him that that's just beautiful music. It, it really shows the talent of an original songwriter uh, that maybe doesn't have a huge giant message for you in it, but it's just cool music and. You know, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and I grew up on 50s and 60s music mixed in with that 70s and 80s music. And I grew up on music from living in the South that was, you know, country music. And I remember when Alabama was revolutionary to country music. And I still remember great music by people like, you know, Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. And I still love their music. 
And I love classic rock, and I love all kinds of music. And one of my favorite groups of all time, and always will be, is a band almost everybody on the face of planet Earth has heard of and heard music by. And that band is Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd is a revolutionary band. A lot of their music is quite revolutionary. Uh, and one of their best-known albums was called A Momentary Lapse of Reason. And there were some really big hits on that album. Learning to Fly and Dogs of War were two of them. And I'll be playing those for you in the future. But there's a song on that album that is one of the best pieces of music and, and most incredible songs ever written, in my opinion, that I don't think ever got as big as it should have. It wasn't ever really on the radio as much as it should be, and maybe because it's too real. It's called On the Turning Away, and I'm going to play that song for you today. And it's a very sad song, yet it can be inspirational. On the Turning Away is about how we all turn away from our fellow man. Um, don't believe that what's happening is just another's suffering. We believe that if we just turn away from the, 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 the horrible things that happen to other people, it really doesn't affect us, so we'll be okay. But there's a lot of hope in that song, too, because the concept is we don't have to. And that's what I want to end you know, this week on with you, is we don't have to turn away from the needs of others. We don't, Even as survivalists, we don't turn away from the needs of others. We prepare so that we can be part of the solution, not so that we can be isolationists. If you've been around for a while, you know that's the case with TSP. But there's another way to see this song. If we stop turning away from each other, which is what we do, that is that is modern society. That's what makes this song so hard-hitting. It's exactly what we do. We turn away from each other. Well, where are we turning to? Where do we as a society turn to for our solutions? We turn to them. The they that I talked about at the beginning of the show. We turn to them. We turn to government. We turn to corporations. We turn to the people that are bigger than us because we think that bigger is better and that we can't possibly solve these problems ourselves. So as you listen to the lyrics in this song today and think about all of the times that we turn away from helping each other, I want you to think about turning away in a different way. What if we all, what if we all start turning away from them? What if we practice the type of proactive apathy that I've been talking about for years here on the Survival Podcast? What if we start saying to the system, I will not participate in your system willingly anymore. I will not lend my energy to the illusion that you're creating for other people. I will build my own life my own way. It is by turning away from them that we can start turning toward each other. And with that, please enjoy this song. And if you've never heard it before, really take it in. And if you have, reconnect with one of the best pieces of music, in my opinion, that's ever been produced. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. On the turning away From the pale and downtrodden And the world 
they say which we won't understand don't accept that what's happening is just a case of all the suffering or you'll find that you're joining in the turning away it's a sin that sometimes 